Hello, good evening, and welcome to Resistance TV. In tonight's programme, we're going to be discussing war crimes. It's 21 years since the UK deployed troops into Afghanistan after the attack on New York's Twin Towers. And next year marks the 20th anniversary of the illegal war in Iraq. We know from the Iraq war logs, the collateral murder video, and the Afghan war leaks that were obtained by Julian Assange and published by WikiLeaks, that truly sickening war crimes were committed by coalition forces in those countries. In Iraq's notorious Abu Ghraib prison, coalition personnel raped and tortured prisoners. Even children were not spared the horrors of that hellhole. But in April last year, this government passed the Overseas Operations Act with little or no opposition from Labour MPs in the House of Commons. This legislation seeks to impede the prosecution of British soldiers who commit war crimes while on active duty overseas. Joining us to discuss this shocking state of affairs is Irfan Chowdhury. Irfan is a freelance writer specialising in Western war crimes in the Middle East. He's previously been published in numerous journals and he's currently running his own Substack newsletter. He's also doing his PhD on British war crimes in Iraq at the University of Brighton. Okay, well, Tell us a little bit then about some of your research, Irfan, because, I mean, it's, it's a truly a, a horrendous tale that, you know, the corporate media has given some attention to, but, but very little in reality. And certainly the politicians seem very keen to sweep this, this, this disgusting uh, actions of the British uh, state, you know, the British uh, forces to sweep, sweep that under the carpet. Yeah, um, well, I, I first began kind of properly researching it at the end of 2020 when the International Criminal Court published its report on war crimes committed by the British Army in Iraq, which they'd been um, conducting for numerous years before that, um, a really thorough investigation. And um, all of the headlines pretty much in the corporate media were that the International Criminal Court had declined to pursue prosecutions against British soldiers. Um, but what they kind of left in smaller print, if you actually read the articles, was that the International Criminal Court concluded that British soldiers did commit um, egregious and systematic war crimes in Iraq. So because none of those specific findings of the court were actually being published and reported on in the corporate media, I decided I would read the full report and actually find out what the findings were and kind of write about them if there was anything particularly newsworthy in there, which hadn't previously come to light. And what I found was that the revelations of the court completely contradict the kind of prevailing perception in Britain, I think, um, including among large parts of the left around the conduct of the British army in Iraq. I think that the prevailing perception is that, you know, British soldiers may have technically violated the Geneva Convention during kind of heat of the battle situations or, you know, when they had to decide, make a split second decision between pulling the trigger or not pulling the trigger if they were in really difficult positions. Maybe they technically, you know, violated the Geneva Convention or, accidentally crossed the line or whatever. But if you read the report, what we're talking about are really sadistic war crimes committed by British soldiers, not in heat of the battle situations, but the majority of the really egregious offences were committed in detention against completely vulnerable defenceless detainees. 
And um, I could give you two examples, like two of the most shocking examples from the report to illustrate what I mean. Um, one was from Camp Breadbasket in 2003, which was a humanitarian AIDS distribution centre, which was set up by the British Army after the invasion in 2003. And it was set up on the outskirts of Basra, which was occupied by British troops at the time. And because after the invasion and the overthrow of the Ba'athist regime, there was a breakdown in law and order, um, especially in Basra, and there was widespread looting. Um, and as a result, British soldiers ended up playing a kind of a role as like a police force to police the civilian population, which is kind of a classic um role that armies play during military occupations. Um, but because in Basra there was widespread looting at the time, Camp Breadbasket had become a common target for looters, which were often kind of young men, uh, young Iraqi men would break into the camp and, you know, try and get food and whatever else they could find to feed their families and that kind of stuff. And because Camp Breadbasket was a common target, um, Captain Taylor, who was the quartermaster of the camp, uh, where British soldiers were stationed, he basically decided that the next time, uh, you know, young Iraqi men, completely unarmed, they're civilians, but the next time they break into the camp, um, the order that he sent out was for British soldiers at the camp to capture them and put them to work around the camp to do manual labour. And the International Criminal Court report notes that that, that order itself was illegal. It's, it violates the Geneva Convention. But what essentially happened was that he gave the soldiers under his command free reign to do whatever they want because he wasn't, no one was supervising them at the time that they carried out the order. So what happened is um, the next morning uh, in uh, January 2003, um, when Iraqi uh, young Iraqi men um, broke into the camp to, to loot the supplies. Um, soldiers captured them. And then the ICC report concludes that at least seven of the Iraqi victims, two of whom were children, uh, one of them was a 13-year-old boy, one of them was a 17-year-old boy, were subjected to the war crimes of torture, sexual violence, and one of them was raped. Um, and basically the, the reason it came to light was because um, in 2005, one of the soldiers who was involved in these abuses um, went to a civilian shop in the UK and to get trophy pictures, which they had taken of the torture and the sexual violence developed in a shop in a in a photography shop in the UK. And one of the, the shop assistants just happened to see the pictures of the, the torture and the sexual violence, and she reported it to the police. And then that's how the whole thing was blown open. But what the ICC report notes is that multiple military personnel at the camp were aware of what was going on. And these were, I should note, these were soldiers essentially just doing the most like, like despicable things you can imagine to completely defenseless people, including two children. And multiple military personnel were aware of what was happening and they all refused, they all failed to report it. And the only only three soldiers were prosecuted, and none of them were prosecuted for torture. None of them were prosecuted for rape. None of them were prosecuted for sexual violence. Three low-ranking soldiers were prosecuted for the more minor offences, and the more minor offences were things like 
an Iraqi being tied to a forklift and being raised up in the air and um, an Iraqi being tied to the ground and a soldier uh, simulating a punch as a picture was taken and that kind of thing. The judge advocate noted at the trial that the soldiers who were being prosecuted weren't weren't responsible for the most severe offences. And the ISIS and those soldiers were um, actually convicted and they had their sentences shortened during a closed military hearing subsequently. But no one was prosecuted for war crimes, even though the report notes in that case, um, really severe war crimes were committed. And as an example of probably the, the worst war crime that happened in that situation, which was the rape, that happened to an 18-year-old Iraqi guy who um, he walked into a storeroom where there were two British soldiers and the two soldiers um, held him down on the ground. This is confirmed in the ICC report, held him down, took turns anally raping him and then proceeded to torture him after they had raped him by slashing him with knives. And the ICC report confirms that that happened, that there's sufficient evidence to determine yeah. that, that happened. And none of the soldiers who perpetrated that have been prosecuted or convicted or anything. Yeah. Um, and the second case, which kind of <clears throat> illustrates what I'm talking about, it was at Al Amara in southern Iraq, which was also occupied by British soldiers in 2003. And um, video footage emerged in 2006 because it was leaked by, excuse me, this, this incident happened in 2004 in Al Amara. Um, and video footage was leaked in 2006 because a British soldier found the footage on one of his colleagues' phones and he leaked it to News of the World at the time. And what the video footage shows is uh, it was at a riot. Um, uh, there was a riot taking place in the city. Uh, British soldiers captured two Iraqi children who were in the riot, who were throwing stones and dragged them into a military compound. And the footage shows... Uh, the British soldiers are really savagely beating these children as the children are crying and screaming. And the ICC concludes what happened in that case was, number one, the war crime of torture. The children were tortured. Number two, the war crime of cruel and inhumane treatment. So we're talking about two war crimes which were being inflicted upon two children by British soldiers. And in the video footage, you can hear the soldier who's filming really kind of enthusiastically cheering it on and saying, you know, like, um, you know, little fuckers, like, I hope you die and stuff like that and laughing. And uh, in 2012, the military prosecutors determined there was sufficient evidence to prosecute the soldiers involved. Um, but they, they determined um, they would only be prosecuted for assault by battery, not for war crimes. Um, and at that time, there was a statute of limitations of six months on uh, assault by battery. So the time limit had already expired by that time. So they decided we're not going to pr press any charges against the soldiers. And in the ICC report, when they talk about that case, the ICC contacted the Ministry of Defence to determine whether there could be uh, new charges brought against the soldiers because they concluded this was the war crime of torture and the war crime of cruel and inhumane treatment against children. And the reply from the military prosecutors, which the ICC publishes, is that this case is so minor and so old that we're not going to press charges. So that's a clear-cut case of children being tortured. And the Ministry of Defence 
has literally said it's such a minor case and it's so old that we're not going to press charges Mm -hmm. so those cases kind of and there are many more cases but those two kind of illustrate exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about british war crimes in iraq we're talking about sadistic war crimes yeah against defenseless vulnerable people including children and no one has been prosecuted for the worst offenses no, indeed. And I mean, what, what do you make of the fact that, I mean, that, that's truly shocking account that you've just gone through there, Irfan. It's, it's, you know, it's quite difficult to, to listen to, to be honest with you. You know, the sheer brutality, it's, it's almost difficult to, well, it is impossible to comprehend how people can do that to another human being. I wonder what you make, though, of the almost conspiracy of silence in the mainstream media and the political class about this what do you think accounts for that well i think i think there's there's kind of a broader mindset like which i i think pervades i I think it tends to pervade quite a, a large section of the country which is that you know when we when we think of the armed forces even if the majority of people in britain were against the invasion of iraq and against the occupation i think that there's still a particular mindset with regard to the armed forces that you know they're our brave boys and girls who are out there even if the war itself is wrong and we disagree with the war we still think the soldiers are, are still trying to do the best that they can under difficult conditions and they're still you know they're still fighting for Mm. something you know they're still fighting for a just cause or whatever in their own minds Mm. and they're still trying to carry out their duties to the best of their abilities and they're still fighting bravely and stuff and I think that even if you know even if a lot of people in the country are against the specific war they don't want to think that the soldiers themselves are committing atrocities whatever especially not on that level um, no. But in terms of like why the corporate media in general has stayed away from it, and particularly like politicians and people in power, if you read the ICC report, what it details are like the worst crimes you can think of committed by agents of the British state. And not just that, but the fact that the British state has systematically essentially granted immunity to the perpetrators and covered up the, the offences. And that just completely blows apart the myth that the British state tries to promote about itself, that it's, you know, promoting freedom and democracy around the world, especially right now with regards to Ukraine, where, you know, um, Boris Johnson and not not just the Conservatives, but like the Labour Party as well, like the, the entire British establishment is presenting itself as on the side of freedom and democracy and you know we support human rights and you know if you read the report it's like it just it blows apart that entire national myth that like Mm. the British state has constructed for itself and it's across successive Labour and Conservative governments this has been going on so because the because the findings are so egregious about what happened and because the British state has across Labour and Conservative administrations has systematically covered it up and granted immunity to the perpetrators. That's pretty much the clearest evidence you can have of mm. 
this myth that you know the the british state acts with benevolence in the world and you know supports human rights so i i think that's that's probably the reason why you know the corporate media and um you know mps and the establishment in general have stayed away from you know covering it and reporting it i mean in my experience the when i was an mp the politicians on both sides of the chamber seem more interested in in being a conduit for the you know for the for the for, well for corporate capitalism the military industrial complex and you would hear labor politicians as well rather pompously talking about it's in the national interest you know to have good relationships with saudi arabia yeah. for example and you know, just drawing a veil over the, the abuses of, of human rights. But, you know, the people that perpetrate the, the, these appalling war crimes, I mean, do you think, and is there any evidence in your research that the people that are guilty of, of these awful crimes are intrinsically sadistic, or do you think that they are brutalised by the military? Um. I don't think they're intrinsically sadistic, but I think it's like it's the it's kind of the nature of military occupations. I think like when you have when you exercise unlimited power over essentially a defenseless population. I think it's it's pretty similar to like what you've seen with Israel in the uh, occupied Palestinian territories, like in 1967. When Israel first began occupying the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, um, Noam Chomsky always says that the, uh, a, a very like renowned and respected Israeli intellectual called um, Yeshayahu Leibowitz essentially predicted at the time that if the occupation continues, then Israelis will become what he called Judeo-Nazis. And what he meant was that um, because... Israel was exercising this essentially unlimited power, like military power over this defenseless, hostile population. Um, it would turn the soldiers who were carrying out the occupation into monsters who would, you know, essentially use it as an opportunity to unleash mm. their most sadistic impulses because they had free reign to do that. And they knew that there were no consequences for anything. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much what you see right now in like in the occupied Palestinian territories where I've read like the breaking the silence reports of, um, you know, Israeli soldiers who served in the West Bank or served in Gaza, basically just um, saying the kind of stuff that they were doing. And it's just they had complete impunity. It's just, you know will break into this Palestinian family's home in the middle of the night and, you know, harass the children or whatever and smash up the place. Or when they're in Gaza, it was like, they said, you know, we, they had like entire neighbourhoods in Gaza roped off during the 2014 massacre and they'd send uh, tanks and bulldozers to just like level the whole place. And it was like, they said it was like playing with Lego. And it's like, if they, like they didn't see, they don't see Palestinians as human beings and they have just like they just have complete power to do what they want and I think it's it's kind of it's the same in like a lot of military occupations I think like in Iraq you know I don't think the British army really 
a lot of them, I don't think they really saw Iraqis as human. And it was kind of just like, we have these like subhumans completely under our control Mm. and under our power. And we know we can get away with anything. And like in situations like that, it's almost inevitable that these abuses will happen. And Mm. I think that's pretty much what you saw in Iraq in 2003 when the invasion happened. I mean, it's a you know, it's a terrible statement, isn't it? On the on the human condition that when people are, you know, put in that position of, of of absolute power over others, yeah, that they you know that they can wield it in in that way. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying that you know you don't see those people necessarily as intrinsically sadistic, but you know it's a situation in which they you know they've been put and and so really the you know the people that should be held accountable as well as the people that are actually perpetrating these uh, these terrible atrocities are, are the you know the the top military brass the senior politicians actually who are um, um you know putting people into that situation who are actually you know tra- well, at the end of the day people are being trained to go in there and kill people aren't they i mean that's the you know that's the thing and uh, so on the one hand you know they're saying you know go in there kill people you know shock and awe and all the rest of it at the beginning of the iraq war for example but then on the other hand, you know, but, but we're defenders of, of human rights. I mean, you know, the two things don't com- compute, do they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, like, when when the British Army took over the role in southern Iraq is, like, essentially a police force, these aren't, like, trained police officers or, no. you know, people who understand how to deal with looting or anything like that. It's just how to police a population. Like, they're soldiers who are trained to kill and to use force so when they're although Irfan, the in terms of policing on both sides of the atlantic is increasingly being militarized i mean you talk yeah. about you know the military not actually operating like police officers not being trained to to operate like but it seems that the that the policing authorities in different countries are taking on a more and more of a sort of a militaristic approach definitely both in terms of what that you know what they wear and and, and just in terms of the way they, they they police. I don't know whether you whether you feel that's true or not, but that's certainly my perception anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think you see a lot of the same kind of parallels in terms of culture, like between the military and the, and policing in terms of like groupthink and you know, um, I'm sure there are cases when you know police brutality has been carried out where you know. Uh, police officers have kind of felt like, you know, we're going to turn a blind eye to what our colleagues are doing because it's just, you know, where, you know, it, it it's kind of like a tribal mentality, like where, you know, we're all in uniform. So, you know, it's it's us versus them or whatever. And, yeah. uh, um, and because it's kind of similar in that, you know, both the military and, and the police have a degree of like, of, kind of supreme power over you know uh, the population or whatever and uh they have the um they have kind of the authority to use force mm. that kind of puts them in a position where they're like where at least you know where abuses of power are kind of inevitable in that situation but i well, we saw a good example of that uh, fun during the miners strike and uh there was a very kind of, you know, like you know, I think you use the term tribal sort of mentality. I mean, the police, you know, were rioting on occasions. I mean, a, a place like Orgreave, but there were other examples. And again, you know, they had 
And they had that power over over the you know the civilian population in in those mining communities, and uh, and absolutely abused the the power um, that they had. And so you know, uh, it's in some ways maybe not surprising that, that that we see these terrible abuses. And I guess the thing is that we shouldn't be engaged in war. I mean, that, that's exactly. the top and bottom of it. You know, we should be avoiding the, these uh, the sort of military uh, conflicts and. Uh, of course, that's uh, you know that's proved really elusive because I don't know what you think, uh, Fan, and whether you've done any research on this. But of course, war is incredibly profitable for the military-industrial complex, isn't it? You know, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, you know, the Republican president, actually a right-wing president, um, in his valedictory speech, I think it was in 1960, warned about unbridled the unbridled power of the. Military, as he, he coined the term military industrial, the military industrial complex. And it has got completely out of hand, it seems to me, certainly in the United States, but I think here too, you know. And uh, I wonder what your thoughts are really about, you know, how we sort of, uh, you know, broach this topic be- with, with trade unions, for example, because, you know, uh, some of the trade unionists that, that, that you talk to work in the uh, defense industry, you know, sort of feel that they, you know they're opposed to they they they're reluctant to to take a stance against um, you know spending on on military hardware because that's what they do for their livelihood. Although the Lucas plan, I mean the Lucas Aerospace Workers, if you're familiar with that, the the Lucas Workers um, back in 1976 came forward. They were they were working in the arms industry. Came forward what they referred to as the Lucas plan. It was a shop stewards combine, and there were some cuts in defence spending and. There was potential job losses, and so they put their heads together and said, "Well, look, we can use our skills for socially useful production." And they came up with some really innovative ideas. I mean, really ahead of the time, and sort of solar power and wind turbines and combined heat and power facilities and hybrid vehicles, etc. You know, well ahead of their time in that sense. Yeah. Hundred and fifty, uh, you know, socially useful products. I wonder how or what your thoughts are. Whether you've done any, you know, work on this. You know, how do we? You know, with that argument, how do we broach that? You know, with people, particularly people who maybe are working in, it's their livelihood to, to make weapons of war, weapons of death, you know. Um, you know, they're saying, well, look, okay, you know, this is, comes back to this point I was making, I think, about some of the MPs who I talked about, the you know, referring to the national interest. And, you know, they, I mean, I did actually represented workers in the in the defence industry. It's not not a huge sector in Derby, but but there was a, a proportion of the uh, Workers at Rolls Royce, who were working on the Trident uh, submarine propulsion yeah. systems, and um, they set their face against me, having worked very closely with me when I came out in support of Jeremy Corbyn, and, and very clearly nailed my colours to the mast of defence diversification. Yeah. So it's a tricky one. I mean, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about how we approach that. I mean, clearly there's a moral imperative. How can you argue with you know in terms of what you've outlined t- tonight? Irfan, I mean, it's you know, as I say, it's very difficult to 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 listen to, but you know, these uh, these these things are made possible by the, the by well by obviously political leaders, but you know, we put people into those situations with weapons which are made you know by people who you know are trade unionists and you know maybe Labour voters or whatever. I mean, how do we yeah. broach that argument with them? Do you think? I think like a big part of it is that you know we don't see. We you, we don't hear the stories of the victims of 
of people overseas who are killed by our weapons. You know, like since Russia invaded Ukraine, it's been nonstop coverage every single day in the corporate media of look at these, you know, heartbreaking images of Ukrainians being blown up by Russian bombs or whatever. But we never, and I think that's like, you know, a big reason why they're so, at least I, I feel like to begin with, I don't know if you think this as well, but to begin with, like when the invasion first happened, probably it's trickling out a bit now, but there was so much like jingoism and like pro-war fervor, like in the UK. Oh, absolutely. Like I mean, people like um, uh, Paul Mason, who's yeah. been outed now as a, uh, a, a an asset of, of MI6. Yeah. Well, he was leading a march along with people like Peter Tatchell. Yeah, uh, and there were a number of trade unions. weren't a lot of them, but there were trade unions. There were trade union banners. Yeah, uh, really gagging for 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 war. Uh, yeah, in Ukraine, and they were chanting. There were those unite banners, unison banners, PCS banners, GMB yeah. banners. Um, but they were chanting as they were walking down Whitehall or wherever it was. Um, arm, arm. What was it now? Then arm, arm, uh, arm. Ukraine, uh, bring an end to Putin's reign. I think was the chant that was that was going up. And and yeah. uh, Paul Mason was quoted as saying, you know, he wouldn't rest until. Putin was uh, swinging from a meat hook in the same way that uh, Mussolini, uh, you know, the fate that befell uh, Mussolini at the end of the Second World War. Yeah. Um, you know, an incredibly, like you say, you know, jingoistic sort of um, yeah. attitude. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 it's, uh, it's really troubling to, to when you see trade union. I mean, obviously, you can put Paul Mason to one side, but when you see trade yeah. unionists, uh, you know, talking in those terms, yeah. Very troubling. It, it kind of it struck me as being like it must have been kind of reminiscent of what it was like when World War One happened. Yeah. I think with like pe- like people on all sides just blindly cheering for their own country and just and absolutely convinced that like we were fighting a war of like liberation and defense and whatever and like and you know just like I, I, I like I don't know if you think this as well, but with the Ukraine war, it seems like this this seems to be like the first time where there's practically no dissent. Like no. I mean there's like some like you for example and like I've written a few pieces on like um atrocities by the Ukrainian side because that's been like documented by the UN as well. Um in terms of like the Ukrainian military uh using cluster munitions and like um indeed engaging in torture and stuff and uh obviously like the Azov battalion has committed a a lot of atrocities as well like over the years but it it seems like like a lot like the majority of like the visible left like the the left that you see um like on when like you know people like Owen Jones or whatever like it seems to be just pretty much just lining up behind what the government's doing and like it, i don't know i think a large part of that is is because like the media has been bombarding us with like the, the images of like the most certainly i think i mean i do agree with that i mean and i think um i think there's there are some doubts definitely i mean some people are articulating those those views others are too frightened to do so this is this kind of group thing going on and people are fearful of of stepping outside of that group thing for fear of of being um, you know smeared and demonised etc. I mean you know obviously it's happened to me but it happened to me you know <laughs> when I was still a member of the Labour Party because of my support for Jeremy Corbyn and a socialist anti imperialist uh, 
you know, policies in that sense. And, and so I had to be taken down just in the same way that, you know, that Jeremy had to be, and that whole project had to be destroyed. But I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are about, because what my view has always been that if you have a political platform, and I make this clear in the book, you know, in my book that you, that, that you very kindly gave a very positive review on social media for, um, but my view has always been that if you have a political platform, you know, you should use it to stand up for what you believe in, to stand up for what's right. But the so-called socialist campaign group of, of Labour MPs, well, not even all of them, I think it was 11 of them, put their names to a fairly modest um, statement by Stop the War about the situation, the major conflict in, in uh, Ukraine. And uh, when... Starmer told them to remove it and remove their names. I mean, they did so immediately. I mean, they weren't prepared to to stand up for their for their beliefs. I mean, free speech inside the Labour Party is absolutely dead. And indeed, Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, has put the uh, you know NATO, the establishment of NATO, on a par with the establishment of the National Health Service as one of the greatest achievements of the 1945. You know, that first post-war Labour government. I mean, what what, what do you make of of characters? Like that, who who are not prepared to, you know, stand by their beliefs. And as I say, it was a fairly modest statement, in my opinion. And yeah. what does that say about their, you know, their inability to, um, you know, address the other point that we made about which we started the program about about, about speaking out effectively about the war crimes that that, that Britain has been involved with. I mean, I have to say, like, you know, like when when the ICC report was published, like up until now, from what I can gather, I'm the only person who has written about specific findings in the report. Like, I'm the only, I'm the as far as I can ascertain, and like I've you know been writing about it for quite a while. I'm the only person who wrote about the ICC report specific finding that children um, were sexually abused at Camp Breadbasket, that Iraqi children were abused. Um, and I'm also the only person who wrote about the reports finding that the Ministry of Defence decided in the Alamara case where the children were tortured that we're not going to prosecute because it's such a minor case. And this is a report that's in the public domain. And I just find it, I find it pretty weird that, you know, I'm just some freelance writer who's you know st- starting a phd soon and you know how can it be that in like the two in the two years basically since the report came out that well, almost two years that i'm the only person who's written about specific findings and i think that on the on the like definitely on the optics left or like you know like the kind of mainstream leftist commentators or whatever, even those who consider themselves outside the bubble, there hasn't been any interest in, well, there seems to be very little interest in the war crimes that were committed by the British army in Iraq. And I think it's kind of like what you were saying about the socialist campaign group MPs withdrawing their uh, signatures from the stop the war statement with, with regards to Ukraine. I think with regards to foreign policy, like um, the mainstream left, like doesn't seem to have much interest in, you know, holding the government to account with regards to foreign policy in particular. No. Like that, that's just my impression. I, I, I mean, like on the left, I think the main 
obsessions are around kind of identity politics the type and i know i read you know when i read your book you were like hammered for saying something a little bit similar um and you, you know they were saying it's a dog whistle whatever which is like ridiculous but you know a, a lot of like leftist um like discourse revolves around kind of empty identity politics and like uh you know issues which i feel like most most people don't really care about and mm. uh you know it then it seems to be straying pretty far from actually holding the powerful to account for mm. abuses of power um and you even see like leftists essentially allying with uh you know like tech companies and um corporations to censor voices which they consider to be harmful or whatever but it's you know it it's it's no longer a case of like the left as a whole like challenging power i, I think it's like it's kind of fringe issues and um you know even allying with power you know in order to push their own agendas which are just divorced from you know i think what most regular people care about and um i think specifically with regards to foreign policy like there doesn't seem to be much interest in actually you know challenging um war crimes or challenging you know interventions which are being uh perpetrated by the british state and i think like the the lack of reaction to nato's involvement in ukraine like since since the russian invasion happened or even before that um it's kind of illustrative of it because there's yeah. no there's no like anti-war movement in the west or, like centered on like challenging no. nato's participation in the ukraine war even though it's probably like the most dangerous war in very much so i mean you know it could it could escalate out of control into a into a third world War and certainly it could escalate into a wider conflagration. That's that's my real concern about it. And what is incredibly disappointing is the unwillingness of of key figures who claim to be on the left inside the Labour Party MPs who you know who are just not speaking out in the way in which they should be. And I believe they've got a moral duty to to do that. But you know, I think um, the thing that probably frightened the horses in the establishment more than anything about Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, they were not keen on his socialist domestic agenda, yeah, that was beyond the pale. But the thing I think that really got up their noses, thing that couldn't be tolerated, was the anti-imperialist stance that, he, that he'd previously taken, although he did, to some extent, row back a little, uh, I think, when he became the leader, you know, because of pressure that he was, that he was put under. I, I don't know whether you agree with that, that, you know, taking an anti-imperialist stance is, is the thing that, that really seems to be you know can't be countenanced by the by the british establishment definitely i think like when uh corbyn brought the motion to hold arms sales to saudi arabia and then um over what they were doing in yemen and then um the uh most of the plp like abstained on the motion mm. just to undermine corbyn like uh i think it was stuff like that and also the fact that Corbyn was promoting like he, he Corbyn's like stance was always in international affairs we should prioritize diplomacy over um you know resorting to force 
Yeah. And even though that's a pretty mild suggestion, it's like that's that's taboo, like mm. in the British establishment. Like we have to always follow America's lead in fighting whatever war America wants to fight around the world. And that's like a consensus across the British establishment, essentially. Mm. And I think you're completely right that it was called in challenging those basic kind of like um bipartisan staples of foreign policy that really just upset the establishment so much. Mm. And the fact that, you know, like foreign policy has always been like like a bipartisan thing in the UK, like when the when the decision was made by Parliament to bomb Syria, to bomb uh, you know, ISIS controlled territory in Syria. And um it was the majority of Labour MPs like supported it and the majority of Conservative MPs supported it. And I remember at the time when Corbyn was like challenging it and the reaction was essentially like, we're not, you're not supposed to challenge these sorts of mm. things. Like when it comes to foreign policy, like it's always been the case that both sides of the aisle agree, you know. Yeah, so the bipartisan. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it was like that. I definitely think it was more so than his domestic program because even in like labor history when you've had labor governments like um enacting like social programs at home which benefit the poor they've always been they've always still been kind of um colonialist in terms of like mm-hmm. foreign policy like even like atley and people very like much that. so um but the difference with corbyn was that he was actually challenging the foreign policy side of things and i think that was the truly radical part mm-hmm. of like the corbyn project um and i definitely think it was that aspect which like the british establishment just couldn't tolerate no indeed i mean tell, tell us a little bit about then your thoughts in in terms of this uh, overseas operations uh, act um you know the genesis of it and, and on what the what you think the actual implications of it are going to be in terms of you know some of the issues that you've been researching and, and writing about because essentially it's it's kind of giving a green light or, or certainly making it very difficult anyway to prosecute um, uh, military personnel, British soldiers who who indulge in the appalling war crimes that you you know that you've outlined from you know making it difficult or if not impossible to prosecute them. Well. Um... I'll speak about one aspect of the bill, which I think hasn't gotten enough attention, which is um, initially, like when the bill was put forward, there was a, it, it instituted a mandatory, um, a statutory presumption against prosecution for former or current soldiers um, who had who had been um, alleged to have committed war crimes or crimes against humanity um, if the allegation was made or if the allegation came forward five years after the event um and that got a lot of backlash but if you read like what um john healy of labor said like at the time his opposition was essentially it was pretty mild it was like this bill doesn't do enough to protect the armed forces and it doesn't uphold british values but he said like at the same time there have been it's indisputable that there have been so many spurious accusations against our soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan, but nonetheless, like we 
you know, we're not in favour of this bill. Um, but Labour then... Just on, just on that point, Irfan, I mean, yeah. you know, Healy's assertion that there have been so many, you know, ill-founded yeah. accusations. I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, clearly... Well, you you respond to that. I'm sorry to stop you training the thought, but I just think that's a really important point. And, you know, you might have something profound to say about that. Well, the example that um, the British government uses is that, is the case of Phil Shiner, who was a lawyer at Public Interest Lawyers, which was a public law firm, which represented um, Iraqis who claimed that they were uh, abused by British soldiers. And... It basically came to light that Phil Shiner was um, engaging in misconduct during the course of his representations, which involved um, paying Iraqis to say things which weren't true. Um, and one case which is used is uh, after the Battle of Danny Boy, which was a, a battle in Iraq um, between British soldiers and uh, Iraqi insurgents in the Mahdi army, which was the main Shia uh, insurgent group fighting against the British occupation forces at the time, which was uh, supported by Iran. Um, the allegations which were made by Iraqis, which turned out to, not to be true, um, based on, and that these Iraqis were being represented by Phil Shiner, um, were things like after the battle when British soldiers. Uh, captured the insurgents. They defeated the insurgents in the battle. They captured them, and then they brought them into a detention center where they did things like you know, cutting off their limbs and murdering them and stuff like that. And that those specific allegations turned out to be untrue. That Phil Sh- and they were being like put forward by Phil Shiner. But um, it came to light in 2019. Um, that detectives in the Iraq Historic Allegations Team, which were set up by the British government in 2010 to investigate allegations of war crimes in Iraq, they came forward and they basically, these detectives who were hired by the Ministry of Defence to investigate the allegations, they came forward and said, cases where there's indisputable evidence that British soldiers committed war crimes are being dismissed out of hand by the Ministry of Defence and by military prosecutors, and they're using Phil Shiner's case yes. it just to basically say everything's untrue. And the cases which they talked about, which were um, subsequently investigated by BBC Panorama and by the Sunday Times, and they corroborated what the IHAT detectives were saying, was uh, um, cases such as uh, Blackwatch, which was a British military regiment. They captured two Iraqi civilians and brought them into Camp Stephen, which was a uh, British military camp in Iraq, and tortured them to death and then dumped the bodies on family members the next day. And the IHAT detectives and the BBC Panorama investigation and the Sunday Times investigation found in that case, the evidence was overwhelming. That And, the, and that was also supported by the former director of public prosecutions, mm. Lord MacDonald. He said the evidence in this case is overwhelming, like that the, the war crimes were committed. And the Ministry of Defence used Phil Shiner's case to dismiss everything. And with and that's also confirmed in the ICC report. They say the same thing. 
and and also with regards to the specific allegations that were being put forward by Phil Shiner about what happened in the aftermath of the Battle of Danny Boy, the ICC report discusses that, and it says the most extreme allegations in that specific case of the Battle of Danny Boy are unsupported. However, it's still the case that British soldiers committed war crimes. Yes. In the aftermath, in the aftermath of the Battle of Danny Boy, and they say what what essentially happened is that British soldiers were um, using sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, um, beating that kind of stuff against Iraqi prisoners, and they said so. British soldiers still committed war crimes in the yeah. aftermath of that battle, and the most extreme allegations, which Phil China was putting forward, weren't true. But that, but the Ministry of Defence was just using that. Sp- those specific untrue allegations which Phil Shiner had made and was putting forward um, after paying Iraqis to make them in order to dismiss everything. And the ICC report makes makes like perfectly clear in so many cases, British soldiers committed war crimes and, and including really, really egregious war crimes no, like the ones that I mentioned. Um, so this idea that there are so many spurious allegations made from Iraq and Afghanistan against British soldiers. That's not true. Like Phil Shiner, Phil Shiner was a specific case and he did engage in misconduct, but that doesn't mean that, and further evidence of the fact that, that that claim isn't true, that so many spurious allegations have been made. The ICC report notes that since 2003, the Ministry of Defence has paid out millions of millions and pounds in compensation to Iraqis in well over a thousand cases Mm. brought by Iraqis in British courts, where Mm. Iraqis have claimed that they suffered abuse and the Ministry of Defence has compensated them. And in 2020, the Ministry of Defence said, we've paid out so much money in so many cases, we actually can't keep a record of all of them. So, so Mm. it's, so, you know, this idea that, you know, soldiers, there's a witch hunt against soldiers and so many false allegations. That's not true. Like there was, you know, and it's not out of character either. I mean, you know, you look at the British, the record of the British uh, armed forces throughout history, you know, the, uh, the colonial, powers uh, or the you know the colonial power that britain was and the way it deployed its troops i mean you know abuses were, were commonplace i mean it was you know it would be out of character for there not to be examples of it but i'll just yeah. are you at all suspicious without wanting to be sounding like a conspiracy theorist that this uh, phil shiner characters uh, very convenient wasn't it that he you know made these false allegations which was then used as a pretext to dismiss everything and we know the black ops that you know that the uh, that the, the, the MI6 you know the foreign office the British states is capable of you know we know what they there is evidence of this both internally and obviously externally I mean you know you look at the record in terms of regime change operations that they've been engaged with and of course a lot of this has now been been sort of farmed out to uh, you know private sort of uh, operators but you know, it, it certainly leaves me scratching my head, you know. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts about that, whether this guy was just a wrong one, you know, or, you know, was there something, you know, something else going on here that was then, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know whether you've got a theory on that or you've got any evidence or whatever. I think it's, like, from what I've read, it does seem to be a case of just 
an unscrupulous lawyer, yeah. I think, yeah. because I've also, I mean, from what I've read as well, like Phil Shiner seemed to be, like prior to that misconduct, he seemed to be a pretty principled guy. Like he seemed to be very determined to like yeah. represent Iraqis and, and um, you know, champion them. And he was writing a lot of articles at the time about... Well, you don't forget, Paul, Paul Mason was, was a great socialist, you know. Yeah, yeah uh, Speaking true. up for Syriza, reporting, you know, very meticulously and inspiringly, actually, about, you know, Syriza's yeah. uh, um, rise to power in Greece and so on and so forth. You know, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying this guy, you know, was... Uh, you know, working with the uh, security service, but you know, nothing would kind of surprise me yeah, anymore, really, definitely. about what the British state is capable of. Definitely. And um, you know, the scales have certainly fallen from my eyes. I mean, I guess, and I was fairly skeptical anyway, you know. But I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of work it seems to me to be done in in terms of uh, you know disabusing people of the uh, of this sort of um, you know fairy tale sort of you know view of the of the way in which Britain operates, you know, how it allegedly spread sort of civilization around the world. I mean, you know, the British Empire was it was an evil entity, wasn't it? I mean, incredibly brutal. Yeah. Uh, all about, obviously, you know, enriching already already very wealthy uh, individuals. I mean, and that's, that's essentially what it was, uh, what it was uh, used for. Work that you're doing, uh, Fan, is, is absolutely uh, crucial uh, in terms of, uh, you know, helping to set the record straight. And obviously people like Julian Assange is languishing still in Belmarsh prison, awaiting uh, extradition to the United States to try and, I suppose, send a, a signal to, you know, maybe to people like you, you know, to, don't you dare follow in his footsteps. I mean, are you optimistic about, about the future, about, you know, getting this message out there about um, encouraging you know people to think for themselves to really expose the the horrors of uh, the British state and what it's up to and what it's done, the crimes that it's committed. Um, honestly, like I can't say I'm very optimistic about it because you know, like the reason why I started my PhD on it is because in pretty much all of like the literature that's been written about uh British military operations in Iraq, there's nothing which is focused specifically on war crimes, even though from all of the human rights reportage and the most recently the ICC report, the evidence is overwhelming that there were systematic and egregious war crimes. And the fact that that's a gap in the literature, like up until this point, that I think it says a lot about the level of interest in this area. And I also think, like you said, the treatment of Julian Assange, I think it's been extremely effective in the way he's been punished in sending a message to people who want to expose like the realities of war. Um, because do you, like, yeah, you know, it's insane that there's a journalist, like pro probably the most important, like the most significant journalist of yeah. like the 21st century being tortured in London. And like hardly anyone says anything about it. Like, there's been, you know, complete media, either the media is silent on it or they attack Julian Assange yes. and it's like 
and I think also like the the smear campaign against Assange has been really effective. Like I think pr- probably most people who have heard of Assange, pr- like if you speak to them, they they probably say, I mean, I may be wrong on this, but this is the impression I get. They pr- they'll probably say, oh, but he's like you know a weirdo, or you know, yeah. like oh yeah, I, I you know like there's very little kind of solidarity with Assange. I think, um, and I think. You know, even just the fact that there's this journalist being tortured in London for exposing war crimes, and most people are just, you know, most people don't really have any idea of what's going on or don't really care or whatever. I think it's it's been very effective in like you know deterring people from, you know exposing that kind of stuff and uh, i mean and julian did an incredible job of course in in exposing war crimes with the you know the iraq war logs that i mentioned the yeah the uh, collateral murder video uh the afghan um war leaks that you know wikileaks um, put into the you know the and he did so much more as well of course you know i mean he was able to shine a light on the abuse of state and indeed corporate power let's be honest about it and political power too you know yeah. clearly i think he upset the democrats in the united states when he leaked the those uh, those emails where they the Democratic National Committee fixed the uh, you know rigged the, uh, the 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 vote for their candidate for the 2016 presidential election that should have been Bernie Sanders Bernie Sanders might have beaten Donald yeah. Trump because he was you know, a genuine sort of uh, although obviously he's been a bit of a disappointment of late but but at that point in time I think it was much more of an anti-establishment figure clearly than than Donald Trump was. Um, and, and it's important, obviously, that we keep speaking up for Julian Assange. And there is, as you probably know, Irfan, a, 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 and it's a sort of a nod, I think, to the, the Green and Common women when they surrounded the, the US uh, military base. And, uh, you know, the plan is to surround the parliament, a human chain around yeah. parliament on the on the 8th of October. And hopefully that will, you know, help to draw attention to, to Julian's ply to, as I say, I think has done, you know, more than anybody, actually, to... Uh, you know, highlight the, the you know the abuse of state power and, to, and bring to the attention of the world the you know the horrors of the war crimes, you know the sheer sadism, the brutality of it all, you know, in, in into into sharp focus, as it were. But listen, we're almost up to an hour, uh, and it's been incredibly inspiring uh, speaking to you this evening. Yeah. Thank you for for taking the time to come on to Resistance TV uh, this evening yeah. to give us the benefit of, of your thoughts. Please keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure you will. And the very best of luck with your with your PhD, which you are um, doing now at, uh, at Brighton. Um, how can people um, reach you in terms of, you know, see your material? You say you've got a you know, substack. I mean, is, is there any links that you can give us that we can um, yeah. tell our viewers about? If you t- Tell us how people can, can find out about what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, I am on Substack, um, and it's uh, it's ifanchowdhury.substack.com. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you can find my blog on there, and uh, you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. And it's um, ifanc underscore ninety eight. That's my Twitter handle. So um, if you follow me on either of those platforms, then you you should get updates about what I'm writing about, and uh, yeah, any new pieces that I'm working on or anything like that. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Fan. I really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, maybe we could have you back on again in, in the future sometime when you're, you're getting stuck into your PhD and if there's you know, any revelations, new revelations that, you know, you that you come across, uh, we, we'd, we'd love to have you back and speak, you know, use this platform at least to, you know, to try and 
you know, raise the profile of, of what it is that, that you are doing because it is such an important area. And, and as you say, it's, it's not getting the attention that it absolutely deserves. So thanks again to you, uh, fan. Thank you, everybody, for watching this evening. We'll be back next week on Resistance TV. So until then, good night and stay safe.